That's not just an American view on the region. I mean, in Australia, and actually, if you ask most uh, most policymakers across the region, they're very fixated on on China and and the U.S. China dynamic. China is the elephant in the room. It's 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 unavoidable. I'm Olivia Enos, Senior Policy Analyst in the Asian Studies Center at the Heritage Foundation, and I'm pleased to bring you our lucky number seven episode of China Uncovered, part of our broader China Transparency Project. The project and this series of podcasts are pushing for greater data-heavy transparency for the Chinese Communist Party by highlighting the work of our friends. And today we're going to be talking about a really interesting topic. We're going to be focused on power and influence. But before we get into that, I am excited to welcome back my colleague and a former co-host, um, but also a co-host for this episode, Riley Walters, our senior policy analyst and economist in our Asian Studies Center. So Riley, I'll have you kick us off. Um, what are some of your thoughts on China's growing influence and power in the world? Well, thanks for having me back, Olivia. Um, I think first of all, I. You know, I really think the study of influence is fascinating uh, because it's such a hard thing to measure. I mean, the prevalence of influence can be really subjective, and we happen to live in a world where everyone is trying to influence each other all the time. Uh, you know, so just think of an example. Think about ads, for example. Um, you, know, you see commercials, you see online ads, and in a way, they're trying to influence your decision making. Uh, and you know, I would probably think of these activities more as an obvious attempt to influence your decision making. But of course, there are influence operations that are less obvious too. And uh, I think a good example might be, let's say, uh, self censorship in the media. You know, reporters might not want to say something that might either offend a friend uh, or out of fear of punishment, because you know, influence can have this this either a positive or negative uh, impact. Now, sort of tying this back to China, obviously, the Chinese Communist Party wants to influence decision making to their benefit uh, within China or uh, international organizations, for example. And I think about how, uh, you know, this type of influence impacts things like corporate culture or uh, business decision making. You know, I, I think an example uh, that comes to mind, you know, let's if we tie back to Chinese investment, which we've uh, talked quite a bit about uh, on a couple of these podcasts already. You know, if we talk about Chinese investment in U.S. companies, the question in the United States is no longer just you know do Chinese investors have a controlling stake in an American company, but also whether Chinese investment uh, in itself is influencing that company's operations and decision making. And it, it cuts both ways. You know, if we're talking about, for example, U.S. businesses in China as well. I think a good example of bad influence uh, to this part might be the NBA, for example. Of course, uh, influence doesn't just appear and, and disappear randomly. There needs to be some sort of catalyst. And I think that's where this podcast is, is really uh, influential <laughs> when we're talking about power, uh, which can also be somewhat hard to measure. Um, but, it, you know, power is a way to it's just one way that we can sort of assert influence. And, you know, I think there's different ways to look at that, whether it's culture or economics or good old fashioned hard power. But all, anyways, all that's to say, you know, I think it's really fascinating stuff. And so I'm super excited for today's podcast. 
Mm, I think that's a really great way to frame our conversation, kind of set us up, get us in the right mindset um, before we we hop right in. Um, so now I'm going to bring in our guest to continue our discussion. We have Hervé LeMayhew, who is the director of the Power and Diplomacy Program at the Lowy Institute in Australia. Launched in 2018, the Lowy Institute's Asia Power Index seeks to objectively measure influence and power. The index uses eight different measurements um, to analyze power, including an additional 128 indicators that relate to subject matters such as um, economics, military, and diplomatic indicators. And the Asia Power Index measures and ranks the power of 26 countries across the Indo-Pacific. So, Hervé, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for for having me, um, Olivia. Really appreciate um, this initiative and this outreach to other researchers and think tanks um, in the U.S. and globally. We really value your work. We read it a lot. And Riley, um, that was an excellent uh, uh, setup for for the conversation because it is very elusive. This uh, we know it's important influence, but it is incredibly difficult to measure. Mm, yeah, I think that's great. And so we'll have you um, just kind of kick us off by sharing some of the key findings of your more recent report for the Asia Power Index. Yeah, sure. So we um, at the Lowe Institute in Sydney um, have now just published um, uh, the third iteration of this uh, annual index. And um, as, as as time goes on, I think that's really where the value of um, this um, a very data-intensive exercise uh, starts materializing because we can start measuring trends over time. But um, just, just to take us a step back, um, we uh, agree that basically the way that power works nowadays, um, it's not so much like in the Cold War where you could perhaps measure or size up your rival by the number of nuclear warheads. Those things still matter, obviously. Um, but in a world that is as interconnected as, as ours is where where interdependencies are increasingly weaponized or leveraged for, for influence um, and for geopolitical gain, you start having to look at um, uh, flows of of capital, of 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 goods, of uh, of people, of of technology, even data, information. All these things are vectors of of power and influence. So that is the challenge we set ourselves, and um, that's why we take such a comprehensive view of of um, of power, and and we break it down in terms of what countries resources and capabilities are, whether that's economic or military, also their resilience. Uh, and those are things that countries have, but, but we make that distinction between what countries do with what they have as well in terms of uh, their influence, their level of ambition, uh, their diff- d- different um, networks um, that they utilize. Um, and uh, and that manifests itself through economic diplomacy, through defense networks, through cultural influence even, and media flows. So if, if you're interested in some of the results from um, from this year, um, well, the U.S. is still uh, uh, coming up on top uh, as 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 the single most uh, powerful uh, player within the Indo-Pacific, um, but uh, China has rapidly caught up and um, is now firmly placed as as the second most powerful uh, country within within that region, at least. And um, and we think it's actually a regional superpower. So we're increasingly talking about a bipolar. Indo-Pacific, um, the U.S. unipolar moment is something that that is 
probably uh, a bygone era at this stage. Um, and uh, but the other point I want to make is that um, the Indo-Pacific is is made up of and sustained by many many actors. It's not just a two horse race between U.S. and China, uh, but it involves the the choices, the actions, the interests of a whole range of of middle players and even smaller players down to the size of Papua New Guinea, for example, um, uh, who who also um, are, are incredibly important at the margins in determining the balance of power and even in sustaining the regional order. So we've uh, made a, a very um, uh, uh, protracted effort in trying to include all these players um, and trying to, to kind of measure the relationships and the strength and depth of those partnerships um, uh, between those players as a way of, of, of uh, sizing up what's happening uh, in our region and how quickly uh, power is changing. So the the index itself, um, it's just a couple of years old now, and I you know I think it, it already offers a lot of insight. But was there a, a particular event that sparked the idea of creating this, or was this something that had been in works for a few years before twenty eighteen? Um, well, we worked on the methodology uh, for for about a year and a half before we published in 2018. So um, I think what what really got our um, our brain juices flowing was um, uh, the idea that um, uh, we talk all the time about uh, uh, the shifting balance of power and how Asia's economic transformation. Um, has really uh, uh, c- completely uh, upturned um, the world order, and and that um, uh, the you know ground zero for great power relations is now in the Indo-Pacific, whereas perhaps as you know uh, as little as 25 years ago, the world was still very much rooted in the transatlantic world in the transatlantic space. So now uh, we wanted to uh, basically provide a more empirical basis um, for measuring just how quickly uh, the balance of power was changing in our region and also identifying um, key strengths and weaknesses for various players so that we could uh, engage policymakers in the region and um, come up with a common language for understanding what's happening, but also um, uh, hope to try to um, I- improve in some way the quality of, of foreign policy among uh, policymakers in Australia and the US and elsewhere. So we've traveled extensively with this index. And when we launched, we, we actually went to Washington, D.C. We, we spoke with um, some excellent colleagues at the National Security Council um, who were very interested in this as well. So we've always uh, valued that um, that exchange with with um, with the U.S. as well. And I think the fact is, if if you're looking at uh, the results, I mean, power is always the the combination of structural forces and political choices. Um, so nothing is predetermined. I don't want to be one of these people who who thinks that I can predict the future. Um, um, but uh, obviously, it's always a combination of of those two things. And um, I think there's a real opportunity for the U.S. to remain a very competitive player, provided that it um, uh, continues to invest in its um, unrivaled alliance network, um, but also, I think, takes a keener uh, look at the way in which the economic geography of uh, the Indo-Pacific is changing very rapidly uh, as a result of uh, of China's initiatives, um, you know, the Belt and Road Initiative and, and, and investment flows, uh, but also as a result of the trade agreements that are taking place in, in the broader region coming out of ASEAN and elsewhere. So, you know, in Australia, the great hope is that is that the U.S. can 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 re-engage itself not simply as a as a security 
provider, but also as a uh, provider for um, economic public goods and and the and the rules based trading system in our region. That that is where the U.S. has, um, to be quite frank, according to the index, fallen short in the last uh, last few years. Now, you know, China has its own set of challenges. Um, I don't mean to suggest that um, China will eclipse the U.S. Um, uh, we, we, we think it, it's, it's likely that at some point in this decade, China will eventually level with the U.S. in terms of its aggregate um, overall power. Um, but it will never really uh, or it looks unlikely to meaningfully pull ahead of the U.S. Uh, for various external and internal reasons. Externally, the Achilles heel for China is this trust deficit. Um, in, in Asia, um, among, uh, many of, uh, China's neighbors, uh, you know, it's often, it's often repeated, but it's worth saying again, uh, 11, uh, neighbors of China, um, have unresolved boundary disputes and or, uh, legacies of interstate conflict with China that go back decades. And that really is something that, um, prevents China from ever, uh, being able to replace the U.S. as a security guarantor in our region. So that, that is one big Achilles heel. Um, and internally is the fact that China is a rapidly aging society. Um, so it will continue to grow, um, Quite strongly, probably to, uh, in, in this decade, um, the pandemic has accelerated that uh, recovery and the distance between China and everyone else. Um, but uh, on the other hand, um, it will start to slow down. And, and, and the aging economy, the fact that um, China's workforce will decline by about a sixth uh, between now and 2050, so it'll lose 177 million workers from its working age population, that presages all manner of not just economic, but also social problems to come, on top of which you've got to keep into account that uh, China continues to spend more on projecting power inwards on internal security challenges in places like Tibet and Xinjiang and Hong Kong. Um, and those problems are really mounting um, um, than it does on projecting power outwards in terms of its military spending. So for a variety of reasons, its power will remain hobbled. And we think that neither the US nor China will be able to uh, really assert undisputed primacy in our region. And that is why all these other smaller players matter more uh, in, an, in, in, in an era where uh, neither the US nor China can easily prevail over the others. It's the choices of these uh, middle powers in particular that will make the marginal difference. And that's why we, we feel we have to include them. Well, as Riley alluded to at the outset, power as a concept is is somewhat nebulous. It's kind of hard to pin down. So how exactly do you guys at Lilly Institute um, really measure power? And uh, what information are you studying exactly to come to your conclusions? Yeah, so we, um, we, we, we take it from a very kind of, uh, granular, uh, uh, level. So we, we, we have this kind of conceptual framework, which is, um, that we make this distinction between, uh, uh, what countries have in terms of their resources and what they do with what they have in terms of their influence. Um, and within that sits, um, uh, four, uh, principal measures. Um, but each of these measures have submeasures, thematic submeasures. So for example, uh, within cultural influence, uh, we look at, uh, cultural projection, the ability to export cultural goods and services, um, the, you know, the sort of the, the, <laughs> the, the fact that K-pop, for example, 
was hugely popular, uh, <laughs> not just in the region, but globally. Uh, but we also look at information flow. So that's a separate submeasure. And we look at people exchanges as well, whether that's students or tourism um, and, and, and the like. So, so each of these submeasures contain a basket of indicators. And um, uh, each of these indicators can be explored in their own rights on our website on power.lowinstitute.org. So we've, what we've done is essentially come up with a deconstructed index, uh, multi-layered, and, and you may not agree with um, everything we do, but we hope that we can clarify some, some of the, the main um, indicators and ways of thinking about power and influence in the 21st century. And then if you disagree or have different sets of assumptions, you can actually change um, the weightings that we apply or, or, or completely take out a number of indicators and recalibrate um, the, the index and reshuffle the rankings on, on that basis. So you can come up with your own tailored findings if you want to. So this is much more about creating an analytical tool um, than it is coming up with a um, you know one kind of well, or, or you know a black box that spits out a magic number in the way that many indexes present themselves. Mm, I really like that a lot. And also, uh, just let it be known for podcast listeners. I love K-pop. So that's so cool that (laughs) (laughs) indicators like that are included. (laughs) So you've got uh, 128 indicators that you're looking through. I was looking at some of these more recently as sort of prep for this podcast. And one of the things I noticed about the scores, and I, I liked how you just said you can kind of play with them. Uh, you know, if you don't necessarily agree with them. But one thing I did notice about sort of what's already as a given is that uh, a lot of the scores are generally relative to each other. So, for example, you have China ranked as the largest economy uh, with a purchasing power of uh, with, with, by largest. They are the largest economy by purchasing power parity, mm. thus giving it a score of 100. And yeah. so the U.S. is ranked second, uh, and its score is 71 because uh, I suppose its purchasing power parity is 70% uh, of China's purchasing power parity. And so I was wondering, you know, is there a reason for scoring the indicators in this relative way? And again, you know, like what do you, do you already have some sort of weighted measure that you're applying to these indicators? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think that's that's a that's a really good observation. So um, we apply uh, something called the min max method or the distance to frontier approach, which is to say that we uh, it's you know power is relative; it needs to be understood in a frame of reference, right? Um, and so uh, it is. Uh, um, every indicator is is basically normalized. So you have the the raw data, which is the GDP figure in this case, um, and then that becomes a score out of 100 based on where you sit in relation to the top performer, which is given a score of 100 in that um, in that particular indicator, and the bottom performer, which uh, whatever that figure is, 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 is attributed to value of zero. Um, and most countries sit somewhere along that spectrum. And that allows us to then compare uh, very different indicators but but still preserve the relative distance um, uh, for in, in each indicator for the raw data um, and and aggregate that the, you know come up with an aggregate weighted average across indicators to come up with our overall score so that that's how we um, we calculate uh, the index and it is 
basically absolutely, as you point out, relative. And that is simply to say that, um, uh, you know, power doesn't exist in a vacuum. It exists in relation to others. Um, and so it is your comparative advantage or disadvantage in relation to a peer competitor. Um, that um, dictates um, uh, ultimately uh, your your power or your vulnerability, and for, for whatever um, indicator we, we we're looking at here. Um, so that that's how we you know mathematically go about building the index, um, and and that's that's a fairly standard way of building indices as well. Um, but it is a little bit um, bizarre because, for example, let's say um, Taiwan is growing its economy, and it's it, it, objectively it has a larger economy to what it had last year. But if China is growing faster than Taiwan, then Taiwan's score, its normalized score, will actually appear lower than it did last year. And that's because its distance from China has actually only grown. The gap between China and and Taiwan for that um, economic uh, uh, variable has only grown, even if, objectively speaking, Taiwan um, has managed to uh, become a a wealthier economy to what it was last year. So that's just an example. But it it goes to show how it can be a little bit mind-boggling, but it is all about the relative advantages in relation uh, to every other player in, in the region. You know, you sort of mentioned this already that, you know, you, you don't expect either the U.S. or China to have this undisputed power in the region. I think that's what the index does help remind us of is that, you know, it's not just the U.S. and China in Asia, right? Uh, but then again, it is hard not to talk about just the U.S. and China, especially I think for a lot of our <laughs> listeners, they're more interested you know, sure. in the U.S. perspective, uh, China shows up all the time in the news. And so, you know, especially over the last couple of years, whether it's Hong Kong, uh, COVID, China's uh, growing wolf warriors out there, uh, you know, the, the growing trade war with Australia, the uh, recently signed Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, which I get a lot of questions about, uh, you know, whether that's going to increase China's influence in the region and so on. And so I was wondering maybe... You know, can you walk us through uh, how things like this affect China's score? I know you've sort of already mentioned some of that, but maybe walk us through, you know, how it might change uh, going forward. Yeah, look, um, I, I, I think you're right. I mean, and that, that's not just an American um, uh, view on the region. I mean, in Australia, and actually, if you ask most uh, most policymakers across the region, they're very fixated on on China and and the U.S. China dynamic, um, and uh, uh, you know it's 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 the China is the elephant in the room. It's 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 unavoidable, um, and uh, I think that um, I mean one of the other reasons we include as many players is that we're not just tracking their power, but also their vulnerability in relationship to or in relation to to China. What do we mean by that? Well, you know their economic dependencies, their you know which can generate sort of trade asymmetries or or um, a potential. Uh, for China to exploit that or leverage that, as I mean, we're seeing that now in Australia. I mean, we do forty percent of our trade with China, um, and in recent uh, months, we've really um, uh, felt the ire of China, uh, and that's been expressed through um, these informal trade sanctions on uh, some of our exports to China. So we are measuring vulnerability as much as we are power. Um, the inverse of power is vulnerability, um, and and so to understand China's relative influence, you actually have to understand um, how resilient these other players are, and that's why resilience features in our index as well. But just to get back to your to your question, um, uh, look, I mean, as much as anything else, um, 
from uh, the glass is half full or half empty, depending on how you want to look at it. There, yeah, I, I, I've had conversations with um, with uh, uh, American counterparts who who think that we we have an oversized view of of China's power. You know that that, that you know it's not particularly with um, Professor Joe Nye, who who I. Who I uh, respect hugely, and 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 we drew upon his knowledge, and uh, for in some of the early stages of methodology, he helped launch the the 2020 edition um, earlier this year. Um, but he will say, look, I, I think it's you know China's just looking far too competitive in relation to, to the U.S. And I would say, is look, we're looking at power in Asia here. We're not looking at, at power globally. So you can expect China to do better, and it's near abroad than than um, that. You know, if we did this as a global exercise, China may well be lagging behind the U.S. more. But but equally, I think the the other thing, I mean, the the the, gla- the glass half full. If you're looking at it from the perspective of the U.S. or its allies like Australia, is that the point we're making is that you know China is not all powerful, and and its rise is not inexorable. I mean, it's not it's not just on a linear trajectory. Um, it, firstly, it has pronounced strengths and weaknesses, and that's what we're what we're measuring here. But also, in so far as we can project um, uh, the future, which is really, you know, I mean, an imperfect exercise where we're looking at forecasts for China's um, economy, for its its demographic outlook, for its military spending, and and the like. Um, what we can say is that there there is going to, you know, we've 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 had a very tumultuous last decade, and I think the global financial crisis really uh, tilted um, the you know, really accelerated the the change in economic power um, uh, towards uh, or in favor of China. And I think the pandemic may do that again. So we're going to have another very turbulent decade ahead of us. But beyond 2030, insofar as you can you can look at the future, it's quite clear that um, China's uh, rise starts to slow down and that you can expect a more stability uh, in terms of uh, uh, reaching a settling point with the U.S. and China, just in terms of overall power that, you know, the, the U.S.'s relative decline uh, in relation to China um, uh, starts uh, uh, stabilizing um, and, and that China's rise also starts um, decelerating and that you have a much more even balance of power. Now, you know, I guess the caveat there is that, it, you know, it's not just about these structural forces. It's about political choices. And and so um, much of this hinges on uh, the U.S.'s willingness and ability to stay in the game, um, to continue to be actively involved in the Indo-Pacific region. And we know that the U.S. is a global superpower with global interests and commitments um, with a divided attention span. Um, and so a lot of the allies like Australia uh, we're we sort of worried that you know the U.S. might get distracted either in the Middle East or elsewhere with Russia, and 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 that uh, it takes its, its eye off off the ball here. I mean, in in, in the Indo-Pacific, so we we need the U.S. to stay in the game and competitive, but also to I think um, you know it, it, it's it's a really difficult situation for the U.S. to be in because it's 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 about managing the psychology of relative decline, right? I mean, what we're saying is you're not an absolute decline, guys. You're going to be fine. Obviously, you know, the world is not as it looks like in the 1990s. Um, perhaps the U.S. is a less exceptional power, but it can still be a hugely and, and indispensable power, provided it continues to invest in its network power. And that's where its uh, you know, advantage lies over China. So, so all these political choices um, are impossible to predict. They depend on future administrations and the course of U.S. history, as well as Chinese history, as well as the rest of the region. Um, but, but, but simply looking at the resources, 
um, US and China will eventually reach this kind of um, uh, settling point where they are near equals in in um, in 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 Asia and where where China doesn't ever meaningfully pull away. So this idea that China is you know this is a Chinese century that we live in, um, well we dispute that, and I think that is that is um, the other side of our of our message. Mm. So I know that this podcast is about China, but your index is so dynamic and it makes me really curious about the ranking of some of the other countries um, like South Korea, for example. So it ranked lower to me than I expected when I when I looked at the index. And I also noticed that Vietnam score, um, on the other hand, was really on the rise. So I'm curious, you know, whether or not you guys have received any responses. How did these countries respond, if at all? To their rankings in the index. Yeah, well, um, uh, as you can imagine, the Vietnamese are, are quite happy um, that, we're, we're, that we've got good, good press coverage um, uh, there, and um, uh, it's always interesting because um, we had. Um, I mean, we were actually initially planning on launching this in South Korea this year, but this was prior to the pandemic really, you know, taking hold. Um, so sadly, we were not going to be in South Korea. But maybe it's a good year not to have launched in South Korea because uh, Australia just happens to have overtaken. Uh, South Korea is the sixth most powerful country in our index, um, and uh, and and so yes, I mean South Korea is not uh, yeah, it's still a very powerful middle player, um, but um, but it's not had as good a year as um, it might have um, in in um, in 2018, for example, where it had a better year. Um, I, I think it, it's it's multiple things, right? I mean, so firstly, uh, South Korea has this incredible. Uh, uh, reservoir of, of soft power. I mean, globally and regionally. And that is really truly incredible. Um, and it's not just K-pop. It's Korean soap operas. It's, it's fashion. It's, it's, it's food. It's, it's, you name it. Uh, there's, there's something cool coming out of South Korea. Um, but, uh, the, the problem I think for South Korea historically is that it, that it's a very peninsular power. It, it's very fixated and maybe quite rightly, I mean, on, on the immediate, problem of dealing with North Korea um, and then I guess also dealing with China and dealing with the US as an ally um, and and we've not seen South Korea really be able to capitalize on uh, on that soft power I mean soft power is great it's not something that really is directly can be directly controlled by by the government Um you know, China's invested billions of dollars in its um, kind of soft power initiatives, but that kind of betrays the point of what soft power is all about, which is it's really more about the people, the culture, the, you know, how vibrant society is. Um, and it's not really something that can be directed by governments, but it can be something that governments can ride the wave of, you know, they, they can, they can capitalize on that. But, but the South Koreans lack historically, I think, uh, a degree of strategic ambition to go beyond just their, their, their peninsular, um, uh, interest on, I mean, on their interest on the Korean peninsula. Now, look, that's changing a little bit. I mean, they, they have, um, uh, I think it's a new southbound policy or, uh, something like that, which is, um, we're closely uh, linked up to, um, the independent Pacific strategy in the US or in Australia. Um, but uh, President Moon has also run out of steam a little bit. I mean, he, you know, you'll remember that, uh, uh, you know, last year, um, 
um, it was the height of the summit diplomacy with North Korea. Um, and uh, it looked like things were really happening uh, for him. And um, that's just not really gone very far. Um, and on top of that, uh, he, 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 you know, the South Koreans have a very complicated relationship with their ally. This is this is not the same sort of relationship that we're seeing between US and Japan, where, where we see Japan, for example, as a counterpoint to South Korea, uh, far more invested and focused on things like economic diplomacy and infrastructure financing in Southeast Asia, far more focused on um, deepening and broadening their alliance partnership with the US through the quadrilateral security partnership with India and Australia. You know, Japan is, is a lot more front-footed and creative and proactive uh, when it comes to its um, regional diplomacy than is South Korea. So uh, to the extent that you can describe South Korean diplomacy in places like Southeast Asia, it tends to be more uh, almost mercantile. It's almost about, you know, business opportunities. How can we, you know, make sure that Samsung builds a factory in, in Vietnam? It's not so much about the strategic imperative. Um, and, and I think that's where South Korea falls short. Mm, that's really just, helpful. Um, I can clarify for our, our listeners, <laughs> New Southbound policy is the uh, government in Taiwan's policy, New right, Southern yeah. policy Southern policy. <laughs> That's right. I, I knew I had it bungled up. That's right. The new Southern policy in, in South Korea and the new Southbound policy in Taiwan. Sorry, but 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 very very similar very similar rationales uh, for both for both those countries. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, okay, kind of picking up on on some of these themes. Have there been any big surprises from the data? Were there declines or improvements in the scores that um, were sort of unanticipated? Yeah, there were there were multiple surprises this year. I mean, one is um, I think just a general theme was kind of a race to the bottom um, as a result of the direct and the indirect consequences of the pandemic. Now, maybe that's obvious, but I, but 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 actually, when you think about Asia, you think about a region that's done comparatively better at, at coming to grips with the virus um, than than say Europe or or North America, um, and and so it's it's startling that that the the, the economic fallout for this region has been uh, just as pronounced. And um, there are a variety of reasons. I mean, uh, on the one hand, if you look at a country like India, um, it's lost out the most in, in, in relation to its potential growth. Its, its potential growth trajectory has really been hit by the pandemic. It's going to suffer a contraction, of, I think, of between 10 to 15 percent in its economy this year. And, and actually, that means that by the end of this decade, our forecast suggests that India will only be about 40 percent of China's overall economic output, as opposed to the 50 percent we had predicted for India last year for 2030. So the pandemic has really um, set um, India off course and delayed its rise as an economic uh, peer competitor of China. Now, uh, for for other uh, countries like Japan, you know, they've done much better than India at handling the virus. Um, but um, the recession has really co- been compounded by the, the the aging of the economy, the low productivity. And so it may take Japan up to 2024 um, before it recovers to pre-COVID levels of economic output. So, so basically, you know, this is a region that's going to take a while before, before it, uh, uh, it recovers. And at the same time, China is, is probably the only major economy to rebound in 2020. Now, you can dispute some of those GDP uh, figures. Um, it's often, you know, questioned abroad. Um, but we know looking at trade patterns and even, on, on, you know, 
trade patterns as as reported by other countries that China's economy is um, uh, is is back on track. And so the distance between China and and its and its other regional competitors has grown economically speaking. That I thought was quite startling. Now the the second thing is that despite um, despite this general kind of race to the bottom, the there are only three so eighteen countries registered sharp. Uh, falls in their in their relative power this year uh, compared to where they were in 2019. But the three exceptions to the rule are all middle powers, and one of them you've already mentioned, there Vietnam. But there's also Taiwan, which has done incredibly incredibly well economically uh, in terms of the the management of the health pandemic, but also reputationally, it's come out much stronger um, uh, uh, as a result of the choices and the actions that it's taken uh, this year, and certainly as a sort of counterpoint to the Chinese model. Um, and then there's Australia as well, which has actually gained in its regional standing this year, despite a deterioration in the relationship with China. So, so those three exceptions, uh, to me, point to the idea that maybe you know middle powers are actually uh, becoming more consequential, more important. And then I think there are other surprises, smaller things like um, you know uh, both the US and China have emerged um, diplomatically diminished from uh, from this pandemic. Um, uh, for the U.S., partly that's as a result of uh, the the scale of the um, of the domestic uh, um, uh, uh, well of, of 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 basically the yeah how bad things got in the U.S. domestically. I think that's undermined um, some of the prestige that the U.S. has had uh, or long enjoyed in the region. For China, it's really down to the idea that it's. Um, uh, even though it was ruthlessly effective at suppressing the virus, those same authoritarian reflexes um, have really increased the wariness in the China model. Um, on top of which, you know, the fact that it wasn't forthright at the early stages of the crisis with uh, information that could have really helped um, the rest of the world act faster, and then the rise of wolf warrior diplomacy, it's lost a lot of altitude and and and, uh, and reputation in in that sense as well. But the surprise, I guess, is that um, uh, China, in terms of high politics, has lost a lot of influence. Um, but in terms of um, cultural influence, actually notched up some some uh, points, you know, gained in, the, in on that front. And I was like, well, how, how does that work? How can you how can you be growing your cultural influence at the time at a time when your diplomatic influence is way down? Um, and that seems to be uh, something to do with travel patterns and people exchanges as well as information flows. So the people exchanges, I have to say, I have to caveat these are. This is uh, data based prior to the pandemic, um, but it is noteworthy nevertheless. So 62 million uh, travelers from the rest of the region uh, went to China in 2019 prior to the pandemic. That's higher than ever before. So people are engaging with China across the region much more than they ever have. And that's kind of an indirect consequence of, of, of China's economy being so central, uh, but, but has a knock-on implication. I mean, there are also more students now uh, from the region going to Chinese universities thanks to Chinese scholarships. And that's a problem for Australia as well. We, we, we attract the best and the brightest students from Southeast Asia to our universities. Um, and, and now it looks like uh, China may in coming years start attracting more uh, international students from the rest of the region than then go to Australia. So that, that is a real you know, problem and something we need to be more competitive on. Um, and then in terms of information flows, look, China still lags behind on that front. We, there's obviously the kind of um, harder to measure um, disinformation campaigns and that sort of thing. Um, but there's also just things like uh, the fact that Xinhua as a news agency is or has become the most read 
um, the most popular source of foreign media in um, small Southeast Asian countries like Myanmar and Laos and Cambodia. That matters because it, 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 it shapes the way that these citizens, citizens in these countries understand the world, you know, which media outlets you read to, um, to, to understand global politics or US-China rivalry really informs uh, your worldview. So this is where China's making some inroads, and this is why China's actually notched up a few points in cultural influence, despite having lost altitude in terms of its diplomatic influence. So that's somewhat counterintuitive, but it goes to show you know, the number of indicators we look at. And, um, and yeah, I, mean, I, I think that's just the complexity of power, really. Yeah, that was a really um, comprehensive answer. Very helpful. Um, what findings from your research do you wish received more attention? Um, I, I think it depends on on who you're talking uh, to. Um, I, I, in Australia, I like to. Well, and, and actually, this goes to show for. I mean, this is for everyone, right? Power begins at home. It begins with how vi- you know the vitality of your economy and your economic fundamentals, um, the uh, ability to innovate, uh, the resilience of your institutions, um, and um, you know, I, I when often when when I engage um, policymakers in Australia. I say, look, um, you know, like the US, we're one of the few developed economies that are still growing our working age population thanks to um, uh, migrants in large parts. Um, so uh, uh, this is really the fact that US and Australia lie in this kind of demographic Goldilocks zone. We, 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 we enjoy high productivity on a per capita basis, and uh, we are growing our populations in, in a way that just isn't holding up for Japan or South Korea, or if you look at Europe, look at how much they, those countries are aging. So that is... Uh, the source of our continued vitality in, in the future. And, and for Australia, the real problem here is that um, our, our, our net migrant intake has gone negative. Um, that is to say, more people left the country than came in um, in this pandemic year for the first time since the Second World War. So that is a very um, uh, alarming trend and, and a trend we need to reverse very quickly if we want to continue uh, to grow as a young middle power. Um, and, and I would say the same for the U.S. I mean, really focus on your ability to innovate technologically. That will be the source of your competitiveness with China. There's only so much that decoupling can achieve. I mean, in highly sensitive frontier technologies, um, uh, decoupling will um, slow down China's technological emergence. On the other hand, China is less and less dependent on access to Western markets for the you know successful deployment of its technologies. It has a big market at home. It's more reliant on domestic consumption. It's rolling out those technologies in developing markets. So the source of our competitiveness really comes more out of the our ability to compete with China in terms of technological innovation, the vitality of our economies, and our continued growth as um, as, as societies. And I think um, that's where I always point. Um, you know, look, look at it's it's about resilience and vitality at home, and that is the fundamental, uh, the, the, really the, the prerequisite for your ability to uh, project power and leadership abroad. So we always love to conclude our podcast um, by asking our guests about. What action you would like to see in response to the findings of the index or of the reports? So what are some of the most effective ways that you think policymakers, you know, whether here in the U.S. or abroad, can make the best use of your data? Yeah, um, well, I think um, on the one hand, it's just it's just very it, it's about understanding the 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 the, the fact that that 
power is multidimensional um, uh, and, and, and works differently in different countries. So we also have kind of network analysis that uh, allows us to um, break down, for example, U.S. influence, whether that's economic or defense partnerships with individual partners in the region. So I would always say, look at how your influence is, is playing out in different countries. Don't just understand it at a global or regional level. Break it down further thematically and, and by countries. So that's just, you know, kind of a conceptual point about power. But secondly, and I think a bit of with practical applications in terms of how, uh, how to improve that. Um, but, but secondly, I would say, um, uh, you know, for, for the U.S., you've, you've come out of a very difficult and challenging year. I mean, the, the, the pandemic has, has really, um, uh, hit the U.S. hard. Um, it's, uh, it's also been a, a year of political polarization and, and, um, and, and political, uh, tumult. And, and this is something that I, I think the whole world, um, has, has, has looked on. Um, but, but I think, uh, there's a real moment now, I think, for, for the U.S. to, uh, um, uh, stabilize things at home and, and, and to stabilize its leadership abroad and, and, um, and to reinvest, I think, in partnerships. I, I think the, a lot of what the Trump administration did in Asia, uh, was really good. I mean, it, it, you know, if you look at the, 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 the national, um, security, strategy um uh it was a far more competitive strategy than anything that came out of the obama administration but it, it fell short in that it often became somewhat incoherent when it came when it rubbed up against for example trade wars with not just china but multiple partners and this obsession with bouncing trade flows um and renegotiating trade agreements one country at a time it just wasn't keeping pace with china so i would always say try to 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 match your strategy with with your action um or match your actions with your strategy rather and i think there's an opportunity <laughs> now with bipartisan consensus on china to take the best of the trump administration's policy on the indo-pacific and bring greater coherence to that and particularly thinking more about economic diplomacy i think this is really uh, the crux of the matter so much of the balance of power within our region is is being determined by factors you know, and, and events beneath the threshold of conflict. This is not really happening in the military domain, although there is a, you know, an arms race, obviously, but, but it is happening beneath that in terms of the, the economic landscape. And so we need the U.S., you know, for Australia, we're a big, you know, a proponent of free trade. We need the U.S. to play that, that role that it once played and, and, and to really sustain the economic rules-based order within our region. And, and that would be the single biggest piece of advice, uh, that I would humbly submit to the, to, 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 to <laughs> DC. Um, but I, I also recognize that it, it is difficult and, and, and a lot of Western democracies are facing a back, backlash against globalization, against free trade. Um, and, and I understand all those things, but there's a strategic Comparative behind it as well. Mm, thank you, Hervé. That's a really great note to end on. Calling the U.S. to um, continue to to lead in Asia, and I think you know, as Riley said earlier, it can be really hard to measure influence and power. But I think the Asia Power Index does it really, really well. And um, you know, I think it's it's just great to be able to learn more about how you guys measure it. I think you explained it beautifully. Um, for our listeners, uh, we will be sure to link to the index in our show notes so that you can look at it more in depth and would strongly recommend you take a look at that. But um, in the meantime, thank you so much, Hervé, for joining us. It was so great to have you on the podcast. 
Thanks so much for your time and, and, and the really sharp questions. I, I really uh, appreciated it. Thanks so much. Before we conclude our final episode of 2020, we have a special guest joining us to share his insights on the Chinese Communist Party's lack of transparency. He is a man who needs no introduction, former Speaker of the House and a great friend of heritage, Newt Gingrich. Speaker Gingrich puts out a regular newsletter. The latest one is actually featuring China, and we'll be sure to link to that in the show notes so that you can check it out for yourself. Speaker Gingrich, thank you so much for joining us. We're really excited to hear your thoughts on this important subject. Ms. Cook, I'm, I'm delighted to be with you, and uh, I think we're, we're close enough. I can actually say Merry Christmas as a part of all this. I want to start by saying how much I admire the work that Heritage is doing on China, uh, just as it's doing amazing work on honest elections uh, and tremendous work on economics. But on China, you are certainly playing a leading role in helping uh, alarm and arouse and educate Americans. Uh, and, I, and I'm pretty surprised. Claire Christensen and I wrote a book uh, back in 2019 called Trump versus China. And everything we wrote about in Trump versus China has basically come to pass. But then I would say you have to multiply by 50% or 80% more because with every passing month, we're learning more about the Chinese effort to dominate America, about what their strategies are, about uh, what they have strategies for penetrating Wall Street, strategies for penetrating the universities, uh, strategies apparently for uh, suborning elected officials all the way down to mayor uh, and county commissioner. We've learned that there was a Chinese professional spy, a woman who had a relationship with a member of Congress, a Democrat, Swarwal, who was on the Intelligence Committee. Uh, we're learning more stuff every single day, and we're learning about how much the Chinese Communist Party uh, has penetrated the system. So uh, I would say that what you're doing at Heritage is vital to the survival of the United States and that the information you're pulling together and the reporting that you're doing uh, will help every American understand that we are faced with an existential threat from a system of dictatorship <clears throat> which is determined to replace us and to be the dominant power in the world and which frankly... Uh, has gained a great deal of ground in that goal. I think what's really hard for most Americans to realize is that over the last 30 or 40 years, there's been a steady shift towards making money out of China. And the Chinese who have a very ironclad dictatorship that is dedicated to retaining power and that represents a Leninist-style top-down control of the country uh, <clears throat> has understood that, Amer that Americans often are very short-sighted and that given enough profit opportunities, you can get some Americans to do almost anything. That's had an impact on Wall Street, where there are billionaires who owe their billions to China. It's had an impact, certainly, uh, in Hollywood, where people realize that if you don't play games with China, they'll block your movie and you won't be able to show your movie in, in the what's now the largest market in the world. It's had an impact on places like Apple, which both manufactures a great deal in China and does a great deal of business in China. So you end up with a spectacle, for example, of <clears throat> Apple and Nike and other multi-billion dollar companies lobbying the U.S. Congress against a bill which would block products made by slave trade uh, in China from being imported in the United States. And you have to say to yourself, how can it possibly, the company as rich as Apple or as rich as Nike, 
how can it possibly make sense for them to be lobbying in favor of slave labor? And that's what they're doing. Uh, but the answer is, first of all, that it makes their Chinese partners happy. And second, that in a lot of cases, these companies are making products using either children or slave labor. Uh, and uh, they've gotten very rich doing it. It's a, it's a stunning example of immorality at the top in the American system. Similarly, uh, the news media has been consistently intimidated. Uh, and uh, I, I talked personally with a reporter who had resigned from Bloomberg when Bloomberg News began a series on corruption. And after about the second or third article, uh, they were called in and told, if you keep doing this, we're going to take every single Bloomberg uh, computer out of our offices across all of China, which is about a billion dollar a year decision. And uh, although Mike Bloomberg is extraordinarily rich and at the time was the uh, mayor of New York, uh, he apparently wasn't rich enough. And so they, they stopped all of their investigation of Chinese corruption, uh, basically kowtowed to the Chinese and did what they wanted. You saw the same thing happening uh, when one general manager uh, tweeted in favor of Hong Kong uh, and the National Basketball Association was faced with losing its second largest and most profitable market, and they all caved. Uh, they sucked up to the Chinese and said, oh, please, we really want to, you know, we want you to like us. We promise we'll never say anything bad. Uh, and I, I think this stuff is very, very alarming. And I think that all of us have to decide, um, you know, are we prepared to do what it takes to remain free of Chinese dictatorship? And are we prepared to do what it takes at home to convince American billionaires and giant American corporations and the American news media and American politicians uh, that they can't play games with China, that their loyalty has to be the United States, uh, and that, uh, in fact, uh, that we have to be prepared uh, to do whatever it takes to uh, get the Chinese dictatorship under control before it is so big and so powerful that we literally will not be able to deal with it. So I think what Heritage is doing is a significant building block in achieving this better future. Mm, thank you so much for highlighting that. And I'm especially glad that you talked about some of the severe human rights violations that are going on in China. Um, we've focused a lot on the situation facing Uyghurs here at Heritage, um, you know, even calling uh, for there to be an atrocity determination saying that genocide and crimes against humanity are taking place. And, and of course, um, there should be efforts both by Congress and the executive to make sure that goods produced with forced labor, especially uh, emanating from Xinjiang, should be stopped right in its tracks. Um, so, yeah, thank you so much for highlighting that and highlighting so many different areas where the Chinese Communist Party lacks transparency. Well, I think it's, it's a remarkable moment in time, and what you're doing is extraordinarily important. And you might notice, by the way, I think either yesterday or today, it was reported that the Chinese are using um, basically forced labor to uh, harvest cotton, uh, and uh, mostly Uyghurs, uh, and they're uh, being intimidated and coerced into doing it. So. Uh, the work you're doing on, on uh, the uh, terrible abuse of the Uyghurs is extraordinarily important uh, and a key human rights issue. Thank 
you to our faithful listeners for adding China Uncovered to your podcast repertoire. We've been thrilled with the response that we've received to the podcast so far and hope to bring you a second season sometime later next year. But in the meantime, we wish you and yours a Merry Christmas and a wonderful start of the new year. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please be sure to subscribe to China Uncovered on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or your favorite podcast app. And if you've enjoyed this show, please be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We're looking forward to seeing you in a bright new year. Merry Christmas to all. China Uncovered is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop.